Welcome to The Elephant, given support by the Climate Kick Alumni Association. I'm Kevin Canners. Well, my guest today probably doesn't need much of an introduction to most listeners. Naomi Klein is one of the foremost writers and thinkers in the world today. Her books No Logo and The Shock Doctrine, which both took on the logic of neoliberalism, became international bestsellers. They were translated into dozens of languages and both became manifestos of sorts to the new progressive movement. Her latest book, This Changes Everything, was released last year, and it's been no less instrumental. In it, Naomi Klein turns her focus specifically to climate change and examines how the logic of austerity, deregulation, and globalization has in effect tied our hands when it comes to dealing with climate change and made it much harder for us to solve. She argues that in order to overcome the climate crisis, we also need to push back against the rapid neoliberalization that has transformed Western democracies since the 1980s and seen government budgets shrink and corporate power increase. The book was also turned into a documentary that recently came out, directed by her husband, Avi Lewis, and Klein is also on the board of the influential climate change organization, 350.org. I caught up with Naomi Klein this week in Paris. Here's a conversation. Well, Naomi Klein, welcome to The Elephant. Thank you. Great to be with you. I, I wanted to start off by by raising a point that you made yesterday on Democracy Now!, which I think was a, a really good one. And you said that social movements are about changing what is politically possible, and we need to make what is physically necessary politically possible. And I think that's such a great point because it suddenly drove home to me just kind of how absurd this current situation we're in, where those two things can somehow not be in line. I was wondering if you could just comment on that, what that says, that somehow what we need to have be done, what is physically necessary for for there not to be disaster, is still not politically possible. Yeah, I mean, this is the great untenability of our current moment uh, on earth (laughs) where you know every interview i did yesterday with the corporate press asked me what was realistic and you know and that's that's the way that world is trained to think and their definition of realism is you know what what can politicians get through their you know various political structures at home you know, what idea is considered too radical. My idea of what is politically realistic is like what will sustain human life on this planet. And, you know, the idea of allowing temperatures to increase by three degrees Celsius, which is what these pledges collectively will um, bring us to. And the same people are telling us that it's not realistic for that to be legally enforceable. So that means well, anything can happen. It could be four degrees. It could be six degrees if it's not legally enforceable. So that is called realism in our current structure. But that is intensely radical and dangerous, um, and 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 utterly unrealistic in terms of any kind of you know stable society. So you know, we we are in this moment where um, what is considered realistic, centrist conservative is highly, highly radical, actually. Um, And what is actually, you know, just in line with the laws of nature is considered, you know, unthinkable, radical, impossible. So how how far would you say we have to go until we're at the point where it's politically possible to do what we need to do? Well, I think for starters, the, the neoliberal project is completely incompatible with 
serious action on climate change, right? Um, you know, one of the things that happened on the first day of the summit is Bill Gates stole the show and announced that he was helping marshal all of this private money and public money to invest in the, the quest for an energy miracle, right? This is Bill Gates's sort of obsession that we need huge amounts of money on, spent on R&D um, looking for a miracle that, that will create the breakthrough technology that will unleash a huge amount of private potential, right? So his model is, you know, is really the internet, right? Like the public money that's spent building the internet, right, which is basically a project of the Pentagon, then is privatized by players like Microsoft and Google and so on, and they create the next big wave of capitalism. So what's interesting about that is it takes for granted that existing technologies are of no use, right, <laughs> or of very little use. And so, you know, we could invest massively in public transit, for instance, and that would lower our emissions, but there, you know, it, there's no discussion of that because that's not considered realistic. So it's considered more realistic to invest in notional technologies um, than it is to invest in existing public infrastructure because we just don't do that anymore, right? And, and public transit somehow isn't as sexy as inventing fusion or some. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, you know, I think that just highlights just how incompatible our current system that, um, you know, that, that, that is constantly starving and belittling the public sphere, public services that serve average people, anything that decentralizes economic power um, and fetishizes this billionaire class, private profit, pri private entrepreneurial potential, and, and here they're openly calling for scarce public dollars to go into that model as opposed to, you know, a tried and tested public model. So, you know, I don't think just challenging neoliberalism is enough, but I do think that it's kind of what we need to get to the starting point. I, you know, I also think we've, we, we need to challenge our growth-based economic system because we obviously need to contract the role of consumption um, in our economy. It isn't just about those technologies. We're going to burn a lot of carbon in order to get off fossil fuels. And so, you know, you, the way our current system is built is that money will just go into consumption and emissions could very well go up even as we invest in renewable energy and transit. You point out in the book that, you know, to, I think, to stay under two degrees, we're now looking at, because we've procrastinated for so long, something like 8 to 10% in emissions reductions a year, which is a, a huge transformation. But you, you make an interesting point about World War II in that suddenly we we mobilized the resources. We, we did things that were potentially before culturally not seen as acceptable, even things like rations or women working in the workforce. Can you just talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, those that 8 to 10 figure comes from the Tyndall Center on Climate Change Research, which is, you know, one of the world's leading research centers. It comes from Kevin Anderson, who's deputy director of the Tyndall Center. He's here in Paris and, you know, probably the world's leading expert on radical emission reduction, emission reductions. And I think it's important to, you know, to, to point out that this is, you know, these are not my numbers. These numbers come from the Tyndall Center and nobody has disputed them. Nobody has disputed them. You know, uh, they, it's just an inconvenient, a truly inconvenient truth, right? Um, and 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 Kevin is always pointing out that there is a conservatism in the even in the climate research community, even among, among climate scientists, where you know they too are locked within 
this neoliberal framework. And so even as they raise the scientific alarm, you know, Kevin points out that they're often unwilling to follow their research to its logical conclusions, right? So they soft pedal the implications of this for our economy. But the, the precedent, the World War II precedent, you know, I think is a really important one because it shows that economies can be transformed very, very quickly. Um, in North America and in England uh, during, during World War II, you saw a complete transformation in how people move themselves around, right? So there was, I think there was in some cases, a more than a 90% increase in use of public transit. Leisure driving just completely disappeared. People didn't just go for a drive anymore because they were rationing the use of petrol. Um, and, and another example is, is the Marshall Plan, is, is the rebuilding post-war and the transformations that happened. The limits of that analogy are that it's an entirely top-down uh, approach. It's the state declaring an emergency and imposing measures on society. It was important that those measures be perceived as fair. And one of the things I look at in the book is that people are willing to embrace um, rationing if it's imposed in a way that that is perceived as fair. And in particular, you know, that the wealthy also have to ration. And, you know, it's, it's significant that in Great Britain and in the United States, corporations uh, were virulently opposed to many of these measures, and the governments introduced it anyway. Um, but you know, the problem with climate change is that it, well, first of all, the times have changed so much. So you know, this is such a challenge that was a Keynesian time, and you know, we are not in a Keynesian time, so this seems unthinkable. But also, just that you know, corporations did benefit from those big public investments, and. Responding to climate change is going to mean a redistribution of wealth in a way that is, I think, so threatening. And that, I think, is where the analogy breaks down. In the book, I also talk about the New Deal as probably a better analogy in terms of it not just being a top-down solution in the sense that the New Deal was a product of huge pressure from below. Um, and then, you know, the New Deal was a compromise, right? Um, you know, in a, a deeply imperfect compromise. But I think that that's much, a much better analogy for, for the kind of conditions that are going to produce a low carbon, a just, a justice-based low carbon transition than wartime rationing, which was just sort of like state edict. And I don't think we want that. Like, I don't think we want, um, you know, a transformation by state edict. And I think if we had it at this stage in history, it would be a disaster and it wouldn't actually serve the majority of people. Um, but I think if you look at the kinds of economic transformations that happened in North America in the midst of the Great Depression, you know, it shows what a very, very mobilized population can produce in combination with governments that, you know, are to some extent receptive to pressure to a large extent. I think reading that example of specifically about World War II gave me um, kind of a bit of hope and despair at the same time, because on the one hand, it's like, okay, great, things can really change quickly. Um, but on the other hand, it's strange because, you know, war, I feel like it produces this visceral response. We, see, we saw that with the Paris attacks recently, right. which is obviously a tragic thing, but it doesn't threaten the whole world like climate change does. And yet climate change doesn't inspire that same sort of urgency, that visceral response. You think it could? I think it could. I don't think it's ever received the, the crisis levels of treatment. I mean, like, I think what you see with the Paris attacks is that what gets declared an emergency is is subjective, right? Um, you know, and, and this is not about belittling the attacks in any way, but 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 why does an event like that catalyze transformation, but an event like Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Sandy um, 
not become the same kind of catalyst. It could be the same kind of wake up. And what don't you think it has been so far? Why have those two been so different in their reactions? Um, because of what I was saying earlier in the sense that, um, you know, if you look at the way in which a terror attack ca uh, catalyzes change and the nature of the change it catalyzes, right? It's a kind of change that serves elite interests very, very well. Restrictions on civil liberties, privacy, um, and, you know, it unleashes a huge amount of public money that serves private interests, the whole sort of private surveillance state. And, and you know, we saw it after September 11th, and this is what I, you know, wrote about in a huge amount of detail on the shock doctrine of, you know, how there was a boom in, in what I call the disaster capitalism complex. Um, whereas if we were to respond with that kind of force after you know, whether it's a, you know, a, a heat wave or in the midst of, I mean, what's to stop Obama from saying, look at what is happening in California with the drought and the, and, and the impact on agriculture. This is an emergency. This is telling us we need to change. This is what we're going to do. Those changes would, um, you know, if they're real, if they're really going to bring down our emissions, they would be incredibly threatening to our elites. Um, they would require massive investments in the public sphere that would benefit the majority of people that would, um, it would have to be financed with increases in taxes. Um, there's no other way it's going to happen. You would have to be imposing tough regulations uh, on corporations and telling them that they're not going to be getting new oil and gas leases on public lands. It would be restricting fossil, new fossil fuel frontiers. I mean, all of this, it would, it would, it, there would be a revolt, <laughs> right? A corporate revolt. So, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think we know what it looks like for, we know what it looks like for politicians to make speeches saying climate change is the biggest crisis humanity has ever faced. In fact, we hear nothing but here in Paris right now. Um, but those statements are completely out of alignment with what those same governments are actually doing in the real world. The public takes their cues from, from media, from leaders. So, you know, if a terror attacks pivots to none of you are safe, you know, we have to do all of these things to keep you safe, right? Then people say, wow, like this really is transformative. Um, there's nothing preventing the same thing from happening in response to the reality of climate change right now. Like we don't need more bad things to happen in order for, for leaders to actually do that. Um, you know, we, we, 2015 is the hottest year on record. 2014 was the hottest year on record. Um, you know, whether Hurricane Sandy, um, you know, Typhoon Haiyan, I mean, whatever it is, like, I, I'm, I definitely do not believe we have to wait for things to get better before we can declare an emergency. There is no shortage of... of things to get worse. No. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, is, there are some people who sort of say that oh, things haven't gone bad enough. No. Things are very bad. We don't connect the dots between, between them. You know, we could even be doing that in relation to the Syrian drought and the, and the way it catalyzed the outbreak of civil war and the connection with the refugee crisis. There's, there's no shortage of, of, of emergencies in the way climate change is playing out. There is, a, there is an absolute cognitive dissonance between the discourse around climate change and the kinds of reactions. When people see that, when people see this huge dissonance between the discourse and the response, it, it, they basically tune out because it, it doesn't add up. You know, but this is why you know it does matter. I think in in Paris that marches and demonstrations are banned because you know these huge 
you know, displays in the streets, right? When you have like 400,000 people. It helps close that distance? It does. It clo it, but, and, and even, I mean, literally, these are, these are our tools for declaring a, a people's emergency. Like, you know, you know, people use that, you know, phrase a lot in the streets the other day of, of you know, l'état d'urgence, like this is, like, we are in a state of emergency and it is not only the François Hollande's definition of a state of emergency and, and exposing that subjectivity around, you know, what gets declared an emergency, what gets the emergency treatment. You said what's stopping Obama from treating it like a crisis. And I, I would say, you know, this program is called The Elephant because climate change is the elephant in the room. And I feel like the elephant in the room of climate change is the Republican Party. Because <laughs> um, I, I read a poll even uh, just yesterday in the New York Times that said even a majority of Republican voters are in favor of putting limits on uh, carbon emissions by power plants. Mm -hmm which is incredible given the, the positions of all the presidential Republican candidates at the moment. It seems you pointed out that we need to fix the democratic deficit if we're going to solve the climate crisis. This seems particularly um, a big problem in, in America, and it, it seems like we have a lot of work to do. Could you just talk about, about that? I mean, that seems to be a really gigantic problem. It is, and, and certainly when I talk about these issues in the United States, that, that's, the, that's what comes up, you know, most often is people sense that you know nothing is possible um, in a political system in which the Koch brothers can spend more than you know either the Democrats or the Republicans in the next presidential cycle as they're planning to and it's always worth remembering that the Koch brothers money comes from fossil fuels they're the largest leaseholders in the Alberta tar sands um, so you know they're heavily invested in 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 blocking in blocking action um, you know, and, and then you have, you know, Donald Trump and just, just, you know, people seeing the way in which you can just buy your way into a presidential, you know, candidacy. Um, so absolutely, you know, I called the book, This Changes Everything, because um, once you start looking deeply at this issue, it does, you know, it has this domino effect on like, okay, well, this is broken and that's broken. Before we can do this, we have to deal with that. And, you know, in the United States, I would say probably number one on the agenda is, you know, corporate personhood and the role of, you know, this, you know, the, the ability of, of private interests pour money into the political system and now, you know, um, without any transparency whatsoever. You, one point you made is saying that it can't just be about emissions reductions. We also need a positive future, a, a positive outlook to imagine how things could be better in a, a situation where we deal with the climate crisis. W what would that future look like and, and why do you think that's important to include, uh, not just uh, saying we need to cut emissions to uh, reduce catastrophe, that we can actually have things better than they are now? Well. Because I think that I think there's been this idea in the climate movement that fear alone could be a catalyst, and um, you know I think fear is an important ingredient, and and I think we ha we should be fearful in this moment, but it's it's I think the the most potent combination is is fear and and hope and um, fear and excitement about what that catalyzing power of fear could produce, right? And, you know, if you think about the analogy of the Great Depression, I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was the obvious need uh, to transform the economy because there was so much hardship, there was so much need, and also a really utopian idea about what a transformed society could look like uh, and how it could be so much more humane than anything that people had experienced before. And so, you know, in the book I talk about, you know, like fear on its own is actually only paralyzing or it creates like a short-term response. But what we need is a vision of the future that we want to get to so that the fear, you know, makes us jump. It makes us leap. But we need an idea of where we're leaping to. 
And, and I think that's particularly important in this sort of neoliberal age where you know, our political imaginations are so atrophied that we've, you know, all grown up with this idea that yes, like there are failures in the system, but the alternative is worse. There's no alternative. Like, like this is all there is. So I think th there's such a need for broadening our imagination to imagine another society that is not worse than what we have right now. So, I mean, you know, you talk about this in, you know, in Germany and it's like, what do you want? You want state socialism, you want to take away democracy, you want fascism, and that's all people can think about because they, because that idea that, well, maybe there's another option, maybe there, maybe there's something better that we haven't tried yet, right? So we, you know, I think we need to exercise that utopian muscle that is so atrophied in our society. And in Canada, we, we tried to do this with uh, our little team hosted a meeting a few months ago um, of 60 social movement organizers and you know closed the doors for two days and let ourselves dream about what what would a justice-based transition off of fossil fuels look like one that started from the premise that we don't just face a climate crisis, we face an inequality crisis, we face an injustice crisis, we have huge historical wounds that we need to heal. How do we solve multiple problems at once? And, you know, it was a, one of the most amazing experiences I've ever, you know, been through watching, you know, the labor movement and the indigenous, you know, indigenous leaders and, and uh, the climate movement really work through big, big differences and come up with a frame, which is this, need to shift from an extractive economy to a caring-based economy, caring for the planet and caring for each other, and then sort of codify what policies that would take. And we launched this project called the LEAP Manifesto that's been signed by more than 100 organizations, everyone from you know, Black Lives Matter Toronto to No One Is Illegal to you know, big groups like Oxfam and the head of the Canadian Labor Congress and you know, the really broadest coalition we've ever seen on something like, on any, on any issue I can think of, you know? And we just said, you know, our political parties aren't leading. We're going to lead from below. And, and you know, what's been wonderful is watching people use this as a tool to push politicians and, you know, like leap events across the country. And we're going to be talking about it here in Paris to hopefully um, maybe inspire more cross-sectoral organizing here because there's a lot of organizing going on against austerity, you know, in solidarity with refugees, on climate, but it's way too compartmentalized. We're still not telling a common story about how we can build a future that addresses all of these issues that connects the dots. Well, Naomi Klein, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. That was Naomi Klein, writer, activist, and author of This Changes Everything. And that's it for The Elephant this time. And we'll be back with more interviews soon, live from Paris. The Elephant is put together by myself, Kevin Kaners, along with Christina Peters and Matthias Gutz. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. And as always, you can visit us online at elephantpodcast.org to find all of our past interviews. We're given support by the Climate Kick Alumni Association. I'm Kevin Kaners. See you soon. <laughs>